Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. I'm joined, as always, by Adam Clayton Powell III, my co-host on this program. And I must say that I'm especially excited today because we have one of the great editors of America, and I've spent most of my own career in newspapers across the world. And it's a delight to have Martin Barron, who was variously the editor of the Miami Herald, the Boston Globe, and finally and tumultuously, the Washington Post. His book is called, he's written a book about his adventures in journalism, it's called Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post. Welcome to the broadcast, Marty. You don't mind if we call you Marty, everybody does. I've never heard you refer referred to as anything but Marty. Right, only my mostly my parents uh, when they were alive, they called me that. But uh, he is great. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is wonderful. Tell me, you're a professional editor. You've really distinguished. Did you always want to be an editor? Was that your career path? Most of us go into journalism, if that's what we do, with the idea that we'll be reporters, foreign correspondents, uh, something like that, or cover Congress or the White House. But we don't go into it particularly to be editors. What was your career path and how do you feel about that? I, w I was a reporter for uh, for a while, for about seven, eight years. Uh, but then, yes, I did want to become an editor. I had been the editor of my high school newspaper. I had been editor of my college newspaper. I enjoyed having an impact, a broader impact, to be involved in lots of the coverage to shape the direction of a, a news organization and a publication. So yes, uh, that was my ambition, actually, to become an editor and, and maybe to become the editor of a major news organization. Marty, you open your book, an account of your secret dinner with Donald Trump at the White House. And it was so secret, you could not even tell your own newsroom about it. You wrote that uh, reporters who had dug up many secrets about the Trump White House somehow missed this one. Can you tell us about that? Uh, sure. Uh, it was about uh, five months after Trump took office. Uh, our publisher, Fred Ryan, uh, felt that it was a good idea for us to meet with uh, Donald Trump, our new president. Um, we were the preeminent news organization in Washington. He was the new president. Uh, he suggested that, uh, that Jeff Bezos should come along. He was our owner. Um, and uh, also to come along was uh, Fred Hyatt, uh, who was our editorial page editor, who sadly has since passed away. Um, and um, I was very nervous about this uh, meeting because uh, Trump's a very transactional individual. Uh, if, he did us, if he did us the favor of granting us dinner with him, I was sure that he would expect something in return. Uh, that was one concern. My second concern was that he um, would uh, start to put pressure on us and that he would also see Bezos as someone who was really involved in our news coverage when we had been saying accurately all along that he did not get involved in the substance of our news coverage. But I felt that his presence at such a meeting would signal to Trump uh, that uh, he was involved. Uh, in any event, we had the meeting, uh, we had the dinner uh, on the Trump side. It was Jared Kushner and his wife, and then Melania Trump also was there. Um, and uh, it was civil. It was, uh, you know, uh, everything was civil about it. But Trump really just, he spoke almost entirely alone. He was the only person who was really talking for most of almost the entire dinner. Um, he spoke almost entirely to Jeff Bezos uh, directly, who was sitting across the table. Uh, and he would regularly criticize the Washington Post, describing it as the worst. Uh, and I was sitting to his left. 
And uh, he would then, as he criticized the post, he would elbow me. Um, and it was it was uh, annoying, I have to say. Uh, if it had been in a different setting and without the president of the United States, I might have elbowed that person back. But he was the president, and you don't do that, of course. Uh, and then, of course, after the dinner, he did exactly what I expected. He uh, he called Bezos uh, on his cell phone, uh, asking him, he said, I don't know if you get involved in the news coverage or not, but um, but uh, I'm sure you do. Uh, and can you do something to make sure that the post coverage is uh, more fair? Um, and Bezos told him that he did not get involved in the news coverage uh, and that if he did, he would regret it the rest of his life. Um, and, and after that also Trump called me a couple of times to complain about stories. And, um, um, so that was that, that was that very unusual meeting and, uh, it fulfilled all my, uh, my concerns, uh, that Trump would view it as an opportunity to put pressure on us. If I can state it this way, you went from being a yeoman editor in Miami to being a celebrity editor in Boston because of the sex scandals in the Catholic Church. Had you thought that you might have that kind of news? I'm wondering if Ben Bradley thought that he would have Watergate on his, the legendary editor of a predecessor of yours at the Washington Post. Uh, were you hoping to get some big story or did you just go about it? This is my job and this is what I do. Well, I don't think any editor goes about uh, his or her job expecting that you're going to acquire some level of celebrity because of it or looking for fame. And I certainly did not. Uh, when I went to Boston, uh, my only concern was finding good stories. I had been in Miami for a year and a half as the top editor there. And Miami is uh, a feast in terms of stories. It's just a lot of news that happens there. And um, as it turns out, there was a lot of news when I was there. Uh, there was the case of Elian Gonzalez, which, of course, was an enormous, uh, enormous controversy in the com in the community. Uh, the Cuban boy who had been picked up at, at sea and and then the U.S. government ultimately uh, seized him and returned him to his father, um, who was still living in Cuba. Uh, and then we had the 2000 presidential election and, of course, a constitutional crisis over over that and dispute over who actually won the election, uh, whether it was George Bush or Al Gore. Uh, and so when I got to Boston, I was certainly looking for stories, um, a little bit concerned that Boston wouldn't be as exciting as as Miami had been. Uh, but um, as it turned out, there was a story that presented itself uh, in a column that was written the day before I started my uh, job there at, at the Boston Globe. And it was a column written by Eileen McNamara, a terrific Pulitzer Prize winning columnist. Uh, and she wrote about a case of a priest who had been accused of abusing as many as 80 kids. Um, the plaintiff's lawyer said the cardinal was aware of that abuse and had yet continually reassigned that priest from parish to parish without telling anybody. Uh, and uh, the archdiocese flatly denied that. Uh, and at the end of the column, she said, uh, the truth may never be known because the documents, uh, the internal church documents that might reveal the truth were under a confidentiality order, meaning they were kept under seal and not available to the public. And so when I went to my first meeting at the Globe, the very first morning, uh, everybody talked about what they were doing for the day. Nobody mentioned that story. I brought it up and said, uh, can't we get beyond one side saying one thing and the other side saying something else? Can't we get at the truth of the matter? Um, and I raised the issue of whether it might not make sense for us to go to court to um, to get those internal church documents um, so that we could discover what the truth was. 
And that's what we ended up doing. Uh, and we also launched into a journalistic investigation, sort of on a parallel path. But that took a while, didn't it? It did, of course, like any sort of substantive investigation, uh, difficult investigation, it does take time. Um, that investigation uh, was interrupted, so to speak, uh, by the attacks of 9-11. And the, the team that was working on that investigation had to uh, work on uh, the 9-11 attacks and were taken away from their assignment at looking at the church. But uh, in short order, they returned to that task. And uh, that investigation began uh, in the summer of uh, 20, uh, sorry, 2001. And uh, then we published our first uh, story early in uh, January of 2002. And then we published uh, probably over 900 stories over the next uh, year and a half about that subject, about not only the Boston Archdiocese, but uh, the cover-up of, um, of sexual abuse by priests uh, throughout the country and elsewhere in the world. Um, and uh, there was a lot, a lot to cover. It's what we discovered was that there was a policy and practice of covering up uh, clergy sexual abuse uh, within the Catholic Church. And it's still a story. It absolutely is still a story. It continues to uh, resonate and have enormous impact around the world. Um, Spain just uh, uh, announced uh, how many sort of the, the number of victims that they estimated in Spain. Um, and this continues to be uh, an enormous story throughout the church. Um, survivors of abuse have continued to move to hold uh, abusers and accountable, as well as the bishops who who covered up their covered up their abuse. So it remains sort of a very um, a very important subject within the Catholic Church and within the Vatican. How do you edit, Marty? Every editor seems to have a different style. Harold Evans, the famed English editor, tried to have his hands all over the newspaper, writing an editorial, changing a, a caption under picture, uh, redoing the front page headlines. Uh, others, your predecessor, Ben Bradley, for example, it was an entirely different style of editing. It was one of leadership and basically leaving the day-to-day -day production of the newspaper uh, to the professionals that work there. I will say that the question is probably a little bit unfair because the size of British, of British newspapers is smaller, and it is possible for an editor, although I think Evans overdid it. I watched him one afternoon. I was just appalled that he would try to have so much control over the news. Whereas I was a great admirer of Ben Bradley, whom I worked for, but it was a very, very different style. He did not stand behind reporters and say, why don't you move this paragraph up? Or I think you should emphasize, as some editors do, um, his was much more hands-off until there was a crunch when he was very much there and particularly very much behind his reporters. Um, have you thought about your style of editing and, and how you came to um, be so successful at it? Uh, well, I think it would be very difficult for a top editor at a news organization today uh, during the Internet era to sort of hover over everybody who's writing everything. There are hundreds of stories produced every single day. 
at a, at a news organization like the Washington Post. Uh, and of course, there are constant updates uh, on, on the web and on all of the digital platforms that exist today. And even without those digital platforms, I think it would be very difficult to do that and probably not the best way to run a news organization like the Washington Post. So um, I tried to set the overall direction for our, our news coverage, the overall principles, enforce our overall standards, hire really good people, particularly in leadership positions, uh, make sure that we had the right department heads uh, who could provide leadership to their own staffs uh, and inspire them. And I, too, tried to uh, inspire the staff to be ambitious in our coverage uh, to um, fulfill our mission, which is, of course, providing uh, the public with the information it needs and deserves to know to govern itself. And, and central to that mission, I think, is holding powerful institutions and individuals to account. Um, and that has historically been central to the mission of the Washington Post. Um, and so I tried to live up to that. But on a day-to-day -day basis, um, you know, I would uh, attend all the key meetings, the news meetings. Uh, I would inject myself when it seemed appropriate. I was involved in the most uh, sensitive stories, uh, those that would obviously uh, could reflect on people's reputations, those that um, that perhaps had the most sensitive targets, uh, maybe the most powerful uh, targets of, of the coverage or subjects of the coverage, I should say. And so um, it was selective, selective involvement. But then as a reader, when I would see a problem, uh, I would certainly send that in to the desk. Uh, I didn't hesitate to send in even the slightest typo if I thought it was a really if it was an embarrassing one. I just was I wasn't going to just gloss over it and not tell anybody. So we had a system for letting our desk know of these sorts of uh, errors or if I saw a problematic headline or if I felt that we weren't emphasizing the right story in the right way on our on our uh, website. Uh, I would certainly let people know. And certainly I was monitoring our competition very closely. And if I felt that uh, we needed to react in this particular way, I would uh, make that clear and communicate with department heads and deputy department heads. So it was it was a heavy level of engagement, but I would describe it as uh, relatively selective. Reporters at The Post, uh, uh, who I know, say that you read everything which is obviously an exaggeration, you can't read everything, but they would say you'd know what was in the 20th graph of a story they had filed and how it might be improved, how that graph might be improved. Uh, do you uh, pride yourself on that kind of in-depth uh, reading, knowledge of uh, the work? Uh, well, um, it's our product. Uh, it's our journalism. Uh, I'm responsible for it. So I feel like I need to read our product thoroughly. Obviously, I did not read everything. It's impossible to do that. Uh, I maybe tried to give the impression that I was reading everything. Uh, and I would read through certain stories very closely, um, ones that I, uh, that are the most sensitive, that are the, the most difficult subjects, ones where I felt that my involvement uh, made sense. Um, and, uh, and I was certainly, if I saw something that I felt could be improved and addressed, uh, if something could be explained more clearly or a point could be made uh, more sharply, uh, or if um, I think there was context that was required there, um, or if there was something missing, uh, I would I would certainly make that clear. And certainly when I praised uh, people for the stories, their stories, which I did frequently, uh, I would try to mention something in particular that I liked about those stories. Uh, not just uh, say, hey, great story, uh, but tell people why why exactly I like that story and something special about that story that really struck me. Uh, and I think that did make an impression upon people that that I, I really did read the story. I didn't just look at the headline and look at the lead of the story, but that I actually read it throughout. 
Did you think of yourself as being primarily responsible? You've several times said news organization, uh, whereas just a few years earlier, we would have said newspaper. Uh, how big is that change? Uh, did you think of yourself as being head of a news organization or a newspaper? Well, glad you mentioned that. I don't think it's just a newspaper anymore. In fact, the paper version of uh, the Washington Post is read by far fewer people than uh, read uh, the publication uh, online, uh, whether it's on their website or on some other digital platform like uh, uh, an app or on their phone or whatever it might be, uh, through an alert or through... Um, uh, newsletter that we publish or something like that. So I do view it as a news organization. Uh, I like to call it that as opposed to a newspaper, um, although sometimes I lapse into calling it a newspaper. Um, but I think it's important for a journalist today to recognize, particularly journalists at organizations that have a legacy of being a newspaper, that they are no longer just a newspaper and that the paper version of our, our work, uh, while very important, um, is uh, is read by only a small fraction of our of uh, of the public, and that we really need to be focusing on what represents our future, which is what's appearing on our digital platforms. I have to say that I read the Washington Post every day and only online. And where I live nowadays, I cannot get the paper copy. Although when I'm in Washington, I am so delighted to again have the paper copy because it's a very different experience. You took over the Washington Post's uh, editorship when, uh, as you said in your book, quote, there would be no end to budget worries, close quote. But one, then one of the richest men in the world bought the paper, and some people in the newsroom thought, oh, this means this will be uh, its plaything, we can lose money, it's not a problem. But then you discovered that Jeff Bezos actually wanted to make money. Well, Jeff Bezos wanted the Post to be a sustainable business, and I was very grateful for that. Uh, as I told people at the time, he doesn't regard us as a charity, and we should be glad for that, uh, because if someday he got tired of this charity, we would be in deep trouble, and we should use this opportunity to create a sustainable business. Um, that is our, that's our security blanket. So um, he was going to try to give us that opportunity to uh, create a sustainable business enterprise, uh, but he did not want to, he did not, in fact, treat it like a charity. He wanted it to run as a business. He would make investments for the long run. He spoke in terms of what we might be in 20 years, which is something that I had never heard before in our, our business. I was used to next year or next quarter for that matter. So, um, so that was, that was heartening, but it's not as if he expected to just feed money to the, to the Washington Post in perpetuity while, while losing money. Uh, and, he doesn't, that isn't how he feels we should operate. He felt that fiscal discipline was important toward creativity, uh, that it that we had to think through how we were going to allocate our own, our limited, our our limited resources. And uh he wanted it to be and and I think that that news organizations need to be sustainable. Can't just depend on the generosity and beneficence of the of, of wealthy owners. A lot of rich people have at times owned newspapers. For 60 years, the Washington Post was owned by the Graham family, which really put its name behind the title of the Post as uh, families that publish. And what you see as the future, is it going to be corporations? Is it going to be inspired individuals? I imagine that we're going to see uh, a mix of models. Uh, we're going to see some that are owned by corporations. 
Uh, we're going to see some that are owned by wealthy individuals. We're going to see some that are owned that are nonprofit. Um, we're going to see a variety of models. I think there have been good newspapers under all different ownership models. Uh, so I worked at the Miami Herald uh, in the late 1970s and for and during that period and into the 80s. Um, the Miami Herald was one of the most distinguished newspapers in, in the country. Um, that very same company owned the Philadelphia Inquirer, which also did just tremendous work. Uh, it owned the San Jose Mercury News, which also did excellent work. And there were a number of other uh, papers under that ownership that did did outstanding work. And so that was a publicly traded that was a publicly traded company. Uh, so um, there are look, the reality is that there are news organizations that are owned by wealthy people that do good work and there are some that do don't do good work. There are news organizations owned by corporations that do good work and others that don't do good work. And the same frankly for for nonprofits too. Um, and I think that uh, and while nonprofits is a growing segment of of the media ecosystem, there just simply is not enough philanthropic money uh, being directed toward journalism to sustain um, to sustain media the way that it has been over time and the way that it needs to be in a democracy. So uh, I think we'll see a, a bunch of different models, and uh, I think a lot depends on uh, uh, who is the owner. Uh, what does the owner want from that news organization? Uh, who is the corporation that owns it? And will they invest for the long term? And do they believe in quality? So I think news organizations ought to be judged by the quality of their work and not the ownership model. On your newsroom management style, you write in your book that I wasn't there to tell people what they wanted to hear. And I was known for not smiling enough. How did that work out? Uh, well, yeah, that's true. I mean, I, uh, I took my job very seriously and I had a reputation of being, uh, you know, not as, as people put it, not warm and fuzzy. Um, and, um, um, and, and that re reputation was very much reinforced by the movie Spotlight, uh, that featured the Boston Globe investigation in which, uh, I didn't betray any sense of humor in that, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to betray any sense of humor in that, in that movie. Uh, and I don't think that honestly I betray, I had much of a sense of humor during that period of time. Uh, so I take our work very seriously. I think, I mean, I actually do have a sense of humor if I say so myself, but, um, um, uh, but in the workplace, I think we have to, while we don't have to take ourselves too seriously, we do have to take our work exceptionally seriously. Um, we have big responsibility to the public. And, um, and I, I, I tend to focus on that. And um, look, I mean, I think that uh, we need to really pay attention to what we're doing before we publish something rather than regretting it after we publish something. And, um, and these days we're publishing all the time, at every hour, every minute, every second for that matter. And um, that is a heavy burden and it requires a seriousness of purpose. At one time, the Post was criticized because it carried the horoscope and other things that were not, as George Will, the columnist, said, part of its mission. But uh, I, editor after editor continued to carry the horoscope, the comics, uh, things far removed from what you might think of the mission as it has emerged of the Washington Post. I think newspapers can be a lot of things to a lot of people. Uh, while the New York Times doesn't have comics, it, it does have a, a, a very good food app. Uh, it has a, a cooking app. It has a games initiative. With It is built upon its crossword puzzle digitally and added all sorts of word games, most recently Wordle. Um, and it also acquired a product recommendation service called Wirecutter, 
um, that um, is very different from, it has nothing to do with people's uh, news habits and their news interests. Uh, it, in fact, they're in, the New York Times is, is trying to insinuate themselves into people's daily routines that are having nothing whatsoever to do with news. And that's one of the things that's helped them uh, on the commercial front in the post-Trump period. So, um, so the Post still does have comics. The Post does have a crossword puzzle and other word games. Uh, it does have a vibrant food section. Uh, so uh, I think that's all part of it. I think that uh, we want to be part of people's daily lives. And I think for our own commercial future, we have to have a broad portfolio of offerings for the public. You still use the present tense talking about uh, what we do at the Post. Do you miss it? <laughs> you know, uh, it's interesting that you notice that. I do lapse into that, and sometimes I correct myself. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've been away since I, I retired at the end of February 2021. Um, but for me, that was the right time to do it. I had been uh, editor of the Post for more than eight years. I had been a top editor of three different newspapers for 20 years. I'd come in from essentially from the outside at each one of those places. That's very difficult. Uh, I had been top editor during a period of enormous uh, disruption in our business, uh, largely due to the internet, um, almost entirely due to the internet, uh, but also a lot of political disruption, uh, particularly with Trump's, uh, Trump's presidency. So um, it was an enormously challenging time. I was, um, I was exhausted. Um, there were a couple of uprisings on the staff over my efforts to enforce our standards. Uh, I was uh, 66 years old at the time, um, and I felt that uh, the time had come for me to make a change in my life and give myself more freedom and flexibility. Although I have to say, I immediately set about writing a book, so I didn't give myself much freedom or flexibility, uh, but maybe I'll get that someday. And um, uh, so I, I thought about it a lot. I was very much ready for it. And... Um, I was very tired and uh, uh, sleep deprived. And so um, I felt that uh, when Trump left office, that that was uh, certainly a good time to um, for me to go as well. There's a saying in newsrooms that journalism is the most fun you can have with your pants on. Uh, what was the most fun thing you did at the Washington Post? Uh, let's see, uh, most fun thing, uh, you know, um, uh, just doing my job day to day. I mean, I think overall it's just a lot of fun. I mean, I, my view is that uh, to be uh, to be a journalist, you have to have fun at your work. One of the great things about a newsroom, um, and one of the things Missouri has been a little bit lost as people aren't going into the office, is that uh, you get to mingle with people who are expert in so many different areas. I can talk to the movie critic. I can talk to a sports writer. I can talk to the person who covers the White House every day. I can cover, talk to the person who covers the local police department. Um, or, you know, you name it, a big business story and technology, for example. Um, I mean, what other kind of workplace allows you to interact with so many experts in so many different fields um, and also work with people who are just fun to be around? That's our show for today. Marty's book is Collisions of Power, Trump, Bezos, and The Washington Post. We will be back next week with more from Marty Barron. Until next week, cheers. Subscribe to White House Chronicle as a podcast on your favorite audio platform.